Our sermon today begins in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, but uh, we'll be working our way through the entire chapter today, but it would, might be wise to remind ourselves of something uh, the Apostle Peter taught back in chapter 1, verse 16. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. And that verse, really, it sets the trajectory for the rest of the book. Because in Peter's day, false teachers in the church are dismissing the truth of Jesus' glorious return at the end of history and his final judgment. They deny those future events by attributing the apostles' teachings to fables and myths. Oh, those are just stories, cunningly devised stories. The coming of Jesus Christ and his judgment. And so after the harsh indictment of these blots and blemishes in chapter 2, these men with eyes full of adultery, Peter now wants to reassure his readers that he has confidence in their Christian status and dedication. There is a positive message for the believer in chapter 3. I don't want us to miss that. But at the same time, Peter knows we can never be so secure in our faith as to pass beyond the need of exhortation to holy thinking and holy living. If you would, take your bullets and look at the big picture. Returning to a topic first introduced in chapter 1, 16 to 21, Peter encourages his readers to remember the teaching of the Lord and the prophets who clearly predicted the Lord's coming and the day of judgment. The false teachers deny this coming intervention, deliberately forgetting that God has directly intervened before in creation and in the flood. Christians who live in the light of that anticipated judgment and consummation understand that it shapes how we think and live right now. So in short, loved ones, the true test of our eschatology is how we live It's our ethics. It's not our understanding of the millennium or the mysteries of Daniel and Revelation or the role of the state of Israel in the Middle East. It is our morality. It's our holiness, our sanctification, our perseverance in the faith. Christians who live in the light of the anticipated judgment and consummation of Jesus Christ understand it shapes how we think and live right now. So, let me just... Give, me a, give us a preview of where Peter's going to be going in this passage and then a quick recap of where he's been because uh, his theme is consistent. It's constant. You've heard much of this before, New City. Uh, so I'm, I'm seeing today's sermon really as an opportunity to zero in on some themes in this text I might otherwise skim over and be on the lookout. There's very much a future perspective throughout this passage. Peter mentions looking forward three times. Looking forward. Look at verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, that is all of creation with fire, what kind of people ought you to be? So everything's going to burn, Christian. I mean, how then should you live? It doesn't get any more basic than that. You ought to live holy. And godly lives. Verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 
So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, he's just assuming it, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So there we have it. The apostles' argument couldn't be plainer. Objectively, as Christians, we're moving toward climactic holiness. In the new heavens and new earth, where righteousness dwells. Therefore, we align our conduct now with that ultimate hope. We live now in the light of Jesus' anticipated final judgment and glorious consummation. And Peter wants to remind us of these things. This isn't just new information. No, I've told you before. I'm reminding you of this. He's already covered it back in his first letter. Uh, but the most important things are worth repeating. So let's remind ourselves afresh. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, or beloved, beloved ones in the Greek, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And the, for the apostle, thinking is more than just purely a mental process. It includes the ability to discern spiritual truth and apply it. And Peter wrote both his epistles, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, to stimulate wholesome Christian thinking. Now, there's a good question. Christian, is your thinking wholesome? Are you able to discern spiritual truth and apply it to your life? Particularly as it relates to eschatology, the study of last things, the events surrounding the coming of Jesus Christ. Turn back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, with minds, see thinking again, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope, your eager, your confident expectation, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And then Peter proceeds to connect that future hope with the Christian's present holiness, just as he does in 2 Peter chapter 3, our text today, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So if you were to say to me, Pastor John, I want to be a woman who is characterized by holiness. I want to be a man who is characterized by holiness. Just as he who called me is holy, so I want to be holy in all I do. Then as your pastor, I really couldn't do better than to open up God's word to this text and this lay it out all for you in two steps. Step number one, prepare your mind. For action, Christian, get ready to think hard about the return of Jesus Christ. Step one. Step two, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Because that outlook, that future outlook, brings with it the kind of obedient resolution that pursues practical holiness. That's how it works. The true test of our eschatology is how we live. Back to 2 Peter 3.1. 
Dear friends, beloved ones, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. So Peter wants Christians to have a whole Bible theology. It's not just the New Testament, nothing with the oldest. He wants the whole Bible, both our wholesome thinking and our holy living depend upon it. And which words from the Old Testament prophets does he want us to recall? Well, in light of 2 Peter as a whole, those prophecies that refer to the end of history, the day of judgment and salvation. Again, this is just a constant theme. The Old Testament prophets often, often spoke of the day of the Lord. And because of the arrival of that day, they then exhorted their readers to live godly lives. Verse 2, I want you to recall the words spoken by the, in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord Jesus through your apostles. Because those words are really, they're one and the same. And this is so important. I want you to see very clearly how Peter's arguing here. What the Old Testament prophets foretold was summed up actually in the teaching of Jesus himself, which was then transmitted to the church through Jesus' apostles. Namely, in light of Jesus' return and judgment, live a godly life. But the false teachers, they're notorious for their sinful lifestyle. Their thinking is distorted by evil desires. And they deliberately forget what God has revealed in his holy word. There is no return of Jesus. There is no final judgment. That's what they're propagating. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's their credo. So Peter lays it all out. Verse 3, above all. If apostle says that to us, right? Above all, guys, you must remember that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. And now the apostle brings together two of the most important issues in the whole letter. The false teacher's skepticism about the return of Jesus in glory and in judgment. They scoff at that idea. It's nonsense. And... Their disdain for holiness. Beloved, God wants us to understand above all that the appearance of people like this is no surprise. The church of Jesus Christ can always, always expect to find scoffers in her midst. Now, what they're scoffing at, that may change from year to year, from generation to generation, but there will always, always be scoffers. What do we have in this instance? Verse 4. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Which isn't to say we don't all have questions about the time or the nature of Jesus' return. I I just recently taught a 12-part Sunday school series on the major events surrounding the return of Jesus. And I now know one thing for certain. All the members of New City are not in agreement on every eschatological jot and tittle. (laughs) But this question in verse 4, where is this coming, he promised? That's not an innocent request for information. That's not like the same as saying, well, can you explain to me the millennium? I don't quite get that. This is something very different. Where is this coming, he promised? That's not an innocent request for information. In asking where this promise coming is, the false teachers are implying that it's past due, and therefore it's not going to occur at all. 
It isn't going to happen. And they base this rejection of Jesus' return and the final judgment on a general belief in the unchanging nature of the world. It's, it's super important we see this. What's their objection? How are the false teachers thinking? How are they arguing? They're saying, ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So let me just paraphrase that. They're saying, ever since the death of our early ancestors, ages and ages ago, God has not intervened in the world. From the beginning of creation, the world has progressed with an order and a regularity that forbids us to look for something dramatic, like the future return of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus doesn't come in the future, then there's no future judgment either. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is how they're arguing. The wickedness here, the blasphemy, is mind-boggling. Beloved, in every generation, there will be scoffers who sneer at the notion of Jesus' return. Sometimes that scoffing is going to be grounded in an anti-Christian worldview. Think, for instance, of what the Apostle Paul had to work through in Acts 17, talking to the Stoics and the Epicureans in Athens, the philosophers. Do you remember that episode in Acts 17? They were saying, they hear him, they say, what is this, you just hear the condescension. What is this babbler trying to say? This seed picker, this little bird fluttering around, picking up disconnected scraps of incoherent information. This second-class mind. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Verse 18, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Do you recall how a while back we talked about Tim Keller's term, defeater belief? It's a very helpful concept. A defeater belief is a belief that defeats other beliefs. If you hold a defeater belief to be true, and whether it is true or not is irrelevant, but if you hold a defeater belief to be true, then you cannot possibly hold certain other beliefs to be true. The defeater belief rules certain other beliefs out of court and thus defeats them. For instance, the common false belief that there are many ways to God and one religion hasn't cornered the market on truth. Right? And that is just the water that we all swim in today. But then Jesus comes along and says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we tell people that, we proclaim that good news, and they respond by saying, well, what Jesus is saying there can't be true. My defeater belief of there being many ways to God defeats that truth claim. It can't be right. And in the same way, when Paul talks to the Areopagus in Acts 17, the idea of the resurrection from the dead is a defeater belief for the Greeks. They have no category for such a teaching. For Greeks, death meant the soul became a shade going to Hades with no possibility of coming back to life. That was just repulsive. In a Greco-Roman view of the afterlife, bodily resurrection was revolutionary. It wasn't part of their worldview. And in our own day, in our own day, philosophical naturalism obviously has no place for God's ultimate supernatural visit to Earth, planet Earth. There isn't any place in Canadian cultural society and that worldview for an end of history brought about by God himself. 
I mean, where in the culture are you hearing that? Nowhere. And man, if you think talking to your postmodern neighbor about the cross is tough, try talking about the return of Jesus Christ in judgment. Try talking about heaven and hell. In our culture, the notion is ludicrous to the point of being offensive. But the plain fact is the false teachers are wrong in thinking that everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. On the contrary, God has intervened in the course of human history, spectacularly so. What's the matter with these people? Don't they read their Bibles? No, it's not that. They deliberately forget. Deliberately forget. Two events clearly disclosed in Scripture. Creation and the flood. Verse 5. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. If you would, turn to Genesis 1 for a minute. I want us to notice how in chapter 1, verse 2, this is important to understand, a watery chaos covers the earth, making human life impossible. Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in creating the world, God separated the waters by making an expanse of the sky, so that these waters were now above and below that expanse of sky. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Furthermore, the waters below on the earth were gathered in one place so that dry land would also exist. Verse 9. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So when Peter tells us that the world was formed out of water, he probably has in mind the emergence of the earth and the sky from these waters that we read here in Genesis chapter 1. God brought the universe into existence, and he did so by his own creative word through the use of water. Therefore, for the false, the false teacher's assumption of an unchanging universe is totally without warrant. The very universe that they're talking about, from which they're trying to argue their point, it's always been the same. No, it, it hasn't always been here. But Peter's second point is in some ways even more telling. The same world that God created, he also destroyed. And he did so in the same way he created the world. By water and the word of God. Verse 6. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word... The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, Peter's argument here, it's, it's terrifyingly simple. This creation that God has made, he's already destroyed it once before. And he's going to do the same thing again, only this time he's going to destroy it with fire. It's all here in Holy Scripture. God hasn't left himself without witness that he's willing and able to bring his own creation into decisive judgment. There's precedent in Noah's flood. The same God is still on his throne. 
What are these false teachers talking about? God's word is crystal clear. If these fools are banking on God being a non-interventionist, hands-off, deistic sort of God, well, they've got another thing coming. Their sneering condescension is the antithesis of a wise approach. It's spiritual insanity. Where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And if we think about it, that general attitude is pretty similar to the ruling paradigm of our own day, isn't it? We, we live in the heritage of evolutionary theory. And in the long run, I think what's so destructive, destructive about evolutionary theory is the assumption that history operates through blind chance, uniform processes that are basically invariable from one age to the next. What evolution dismisses is any idea of a personal God who intervenes in the course of history. If the scoffers of Peter's time were alive today, they'd be talking about the invariable laws of nature, I guarantee it. But a biblical worldview affirms that God is constantly active in the events of our lives and in the history of this world. We may not be able to determine the significance of each event, but God hasn't stepped off his throne, nor has he stood aside. and just He just lets events run their natural course. That is not the God of the Bible. And the church desperately needs to recapture that biblical worldview. A worldview in which all of life, all of life is filled with the presence and the activity of a personal, holy, and loving God. The God who is guiding history toward a definite, predetermined end. Which segues into our second, much shorter point. God's patience with sinners before the final day. Look at verse 8. Peter warns, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. And those words are an adaptation of Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. The point being, God being eternal, he doesn't experience time like we do. Right? He stands outside of time. He, he views the passing of time from a very different perspective that we can't even begin to comprehend. What seems like long ages to us is a mere blip in time for him. Which is why we become so impatient, isn't it? We get disturbed. We get upset by even short delay. A couple years ago, Jill and I worked on refinishing our stairs for two weekends straight. Morning and night. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It was hard work. Finally, it was complete. And we were anticipating a much needed weekend off But that's when our clothes washer decided to blow up out of the blue. And due to supply chain issues, we couldn't get a replacement for two months. So we resorted to washing our clothes by hand in the bathtub and then hanging them to dry in the washroom week after week after week. I don't know how our great-grandmothers dealt with this, but finally the new washer comes and our part gets busted during the delivery to our house. So without even offloading it from the truck, back it goes to the store. Another week washing by hand. Finally, the replacement arrives the following Saturday morning, and we had a 
We had a big pile of laundry just ready. We were just living like, <laughs> like animals that we just, well, we got, here's a big pile of laundry. We're going to start washing it immediately when we get this thing. The men set it up for us in our basement and they left without saying a word. So we thought, hey, we're good to go. The washer's hooked up. Folks, just a word of wisdom to all, right? When a washer is delivered to your place, there are packing bolts in the back of it, keeping the drum solid so it doesn't shake around as it's being moved. We did not know this. I had never heard it before in my life. So we're just going insane. I felt like crying, honestly. I actually felt like crying <laughs> so bad. Where it's like all day long on Saturday, I'm just dying. Where it's like, because we had just refinished our basement floor too. It's like, is it, is it not level? Because the washing machine wasn't just like vibrating. It was banging loud, like jumping up. We had to turn it off because it was going to bust. And just that went on for hour after hour, going to the hardware store, getting these rubber blocks to kind of like, okay, is this going to be, you know, having, keeping it straight? Oh, man, it was terrible. Why is it that we think that if God is going to relieve our sufferings, he ought to do it immediately? Why is it we believe God should respond to our pain and our annoyance, our discomfort, our inconvenience, with the same efficacy we expect from our smartphones downloading an app? Quite honestly, we can be a lot like the false teachers ourselves. We deliberately forget, or we ignore, the many, many delays in Scripture. How old was Moses before the Lord used him to deliver his people from Egypt? Do you know? Eighty. We forget God had Moses tending sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. We also forget that Moses died before he entered the promised land. It took Joseph 20 years of slavery and prison before he was vindicated. But what do we say? Now, God, make it stop now, change it now, rectify it now. But God doesn't march to the tune of our petty timetables. And we so often get the balance of Scripture wrong. We don't meditate on the cross. We're impatient. We misunderstand the intent and the purpose of prayer, something as basic as that. And so we forget, or we choose to ignore, that God is willing to let centuries, even millennia, go by as he works out his purposes. And God indeed has an awesome purpose in delaying his promise of Jesus' return in glory. Look at verse 8. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So you see, God's delay in sending Jesus in judgment is a sign of his deep concern for human beings. And the Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 2, 4. He writes, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? God withholds final judgment while he waits for sinners to repent. Now, to be honest, verse 9 is a tricky verse. It's considered to be a problematic text for anyone who takes what's called a reformed view of God's sovereignty and salvation, which is what we hold to here at New City. So just allow me to shoot myself in the foot. 
I could be wrong, and believe me, this verse would be a lot easier to preach if I were, but I'm not sure there's a definite reference to the elect in this verse, a la John Owen or A.W. Pink. Um, This is how some Christians would interpret verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with the elect, not wanting any of the elect to perish, but all the elect to come to repentance. And Peter could be saying that. Uh, That is certainly not an unbiblical notion. So I could be totally wrong. But it seems to me this call to repentance suggests that some of the very people Peter is addressing might perish if they fail to repent. And so he indiscriminately summons all to repentance. Doesn't that sound like a more natural reading? I think it's just more honest. It's right on the surface of the text. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But what is evident, of course, to kind of step back and look at the bigger theology of all this, is that not all people in this world are saved. So then... How do we explain a desire of God's that's frustrated in part, if we can use that kind of language? Well, theologians have often appealed here, rightly I believe, to two different senses of God's will. There's the will of decree. There is the will of what God has ordained. Everything, everything that comes to pass is according to God's sovereign decree, from the Vietnam War to Seinfeld reruns. Everything. And there is the will of desire what God has commanded, what he desires from his creatures, how things ought to be. And God desires the salvation of all in one sense, but he does not ultimately ordain and decree that all will be saved. Now, if it's stated like that, we see the tension, right? I mean, is there a contradiction in saying God desires the salvation of all, but decrees or determines the salvation of only some. No, it's not a contradiction, because Scripture teaches us that there is complexity in the divine will. For instance, Romans 9. The Apostle Paul explicitly affirms God's decretive will to elect some, right? Jacob, not Esau. Yet in chapter 10, verse 21... God stretches his hands out to all Israel in invitation because he longs for them to be saved. All day long, I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Turn, turn, why will you die? That's a paradox, but it's an unembarrassed paradox. And this two-sided dimension of God's will is also expressed in other texts. Complexity in the divine will is very apparent. So think of 2 Timothy 2.10. The Apostle Paul says he... He endures all things for the sake of the elect. Yet in 1 Corinthians 9.22, he becomes all things to all people so that he might save some. You see, in the Bible, God presents himself as the God who invites and commands all human beings to repent. And he orders his people to carry the gospel to the farthest corners of the earth, proclaiming it to men and women everywhere. And to sinful rebels, the sovereign Lord calls out, As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? Ezekiel 33, 11. Beloved, there must be biblical balance in how we think about this. It's a very complex doctrine, but there needs to be biblical balance. One of the ways the Bible speaks of the love of God 
is his salvific stance towards this fallen world. His love is yearning. His love is inviting. His love is sinner-seeking. But the Bible also speaks of God's particular, effective, selecting love toward his elect. And depending on the context, the elect may be the entire nation of Israel or the church as a body or individuals. But in each case... God sets his affection on his chosen ones in a way in which he does not set his affection on others. And it's clear from many, many texts that God has decreed the salvation of only some. And the notion that Jesus died to secure the salvation of some and actually paid for the sins of those whom he has chosen, that fits with divine election, and with the application of the Spirit's work to the hearts of believers. What do we read in Ephesians 5.25? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Think about that. A husband loves his wife in a way that's different from the way he loves other women, right? His mother, his sisters, aunts, and sisters in Christ at New City Baptist Church. A husband loves his wife in a way that's different from the way he loves other women. And Jesus loves his bride, the church, in a way that's different from the way he loves other people. He gave himself up for her. I agree with John Piper. I think one of the most effective ways for Christians to feel the preciousness, the preciousness of definite atonement is as an expression of God's distinguishing love for us. What would it be like for a wife to think that her husband merely loves her the way that he loves all other women? It would be disheartening. He chose her. He wooed her. He took the initiative because he set his favor on her from all the others. He has a distinguishing love for her, a great love that's unique. She is his own love treasure like no other woman. And so God's elect are his own loved and blood-bought people as no others are. New City from eternity past, God decreed that Jesus' death would be effective for the elect. Now, of course, one, one drop of our Lord's blood is sufficient for the salvation of 10 million worlds. It's unlimited in its sufficiency, its value, and availability. No one is denying that. But in God's eternal design, Jesus' death is effective for the elect. It pays for, it pays for their sin. It reconciles them to God. It pays their ransom. Calvary. It, it's definite. It's particular in its intention, accomplishment, and application. It's definite and particular in its intention, accomplishment, and application. Calvary is no hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers. If you're in Jesus Christ, your salvation was won at Calvary's Hill 2,000 years ago. It's applied in time when you come to him in faith. At the same time, sinners are indiscriminately offered full forgiveness. Because God desires all to be saved. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come 
to repentance. Let that verse say all it's saying. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the day of the Lord was a popular phrase of the Old Testament prophets. It was the time of God's decisive and final intervention in history uh, to judge his enemies and then to save his covenant people. The day of the Lord. And Peter's addition of that phrase, like a thief, that's also, that's very significant. Jesus himself in Matthew 24, Luke 12, and the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 also used the analogy of a coming thief to explain that our Lord's return will be unexpected. That's the point. Like a thief, Jesus can appear at any time. And then in verse 10b, we read of Jesus coming with cosmic imagery. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements, that is the basic building blocks of earth. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Friend, make no mistake. When Jesus comes again, it will be sudden, it will be unmistakable, and it will be cataclysmic. It will mark the end of the universe as we know it. So then, what's Peter's purpose? What does he want us to do with all of this? Ask yourself, do you really believe that Jesus is returning? Do you really believe that this old earth will be destroyed before God establishes a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness? Do you really believe that on the final day, those in Christ Jesus will enter into our full salvation. And those still lost in their sin and rebellion will be condemned to hell forever. Do you believe it? Not just as a confessional matter, a matter of mere orthodoxy, but as a matter of tremendous practical significance. Verse 11, because that's where Peter takes this. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? See, that's where he takes this. How should you live? What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And so we come to our final point, living righteously in the light of the final day. It's astonishing you, kind of, you can kind of skim over that verse rather quickly, but Peter clearly states there that believers can advance, believers can hasten the arrival of the day of the Lord by living godly lives. That's what, that's what he says. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. Now there's an incentive to put sin to death. And Peter's not alone. Think of our Lord's model prayer in Matthew 6, 10. What do we pray? Your kingdom come. We pray that. And unless it's all just a meaningless ritual, the idea is that our prayer has some impact on when the consummated kingdom arrives, right? That's what we're praying for, to pray your kingdom come. It's to pray that God's sovereign reign will expand more and more and more and that God will finally usher in the eternal consummated kingdom. And when does that happen? That happens at Jesus' return. So that's what we're praying for. Your kingdom come is a petition for Jesus' glorious second advent. Paul prayed this in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The last book of the Bible concludes with the prayer, come Lord Jesus, Revelation 22, 20. And, and questions about the millennium aside, the coming of the Lord Jesus entails resurrection bodies. 
Death and the grave defeated. Jesus' enemies made a footstool for his feet. The final judgment, the new heavens, the new earth. Jesus' eternal, uncontested reign. All that is assumed by Christians when we pray, Your kingdom come. So it might be wise to stop for 10 minutes the next time you're using the Lord's model prayer as your own and rehearse those glorious gospel truths to your heart again. That truth's going to kindle your affections and make God look mighty and glorious and merciful and gracious and loving. Christian, don't allow that glorious petition, your kingdom, come which is the climax of all salvation history, and which happens in direct consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, don't allow that petition to be a throwaway prayer formula that you recite by rote. Because what you're really praying is, come again in glory, Jesus. Come again in glory. Raise the dead. Consummate your kingdom. Bring in the new heavens, new earth, the home of righteousness. Make your enemies your footstool. Father, fulfill all your purposes in Jesus Christ. I don't want to finish my degree first. Come now. I don't want to taste marriage or the joy of parenthood first. Come now. I don't want time to succeed in business or profession first. I don't want to have the joy of seeing grandchildren first. I hunger now for your kingdom to come in all its surpassing righteousness. That all of your purposes in Christ Jesus might be fulfilled for your glory. If I can be blunt, perhaps your prayer life is weak, Christian, because your biblical theology is weak. Your eschatology is weak. Your understanding of what God has accomplished in the gospel is weak. Your understanding of the big story of the Bible is weak. And so what you're left with, what you're left with when you read the Bible or you listen to a sermon is you're hunting for an emotional pick-me-up. Millions, I think, of Christians are in that boat. They're hunting for an emotional pick-me-up. Where prayer, too, becomes a technique for uh, an emotional pick-me-up or a technique for acquiring blessing and not the fruit of a relationship with God informed by what God says in his word. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now obviously God is sovereign and his divine sovereignty isn't threatened here because God himself foreknows what his people will do. He knows how we'll live. He he knows how we're going to pray. Nevertheless, that teaching must never cancel out this call to live godly lives and so speed Jesus' return. And what will that day be like? That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Oh, the, the false teachers have badly miscalculated. I mean, they've deliberately forgotten what Scripture says, and now this is what they're up against here. They couldn't be more mistaken. They couldn't be more mistaken. Now, unless they repent, and unless they believe the teachings of the Old Testament prophets, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the apostles of Jesus Christ, they're only going to realize they're wrong too late. Verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I love how that ends, where righteousness dwells. We live in a world now where wrong often 
prevails, where righteousness does not dwell. This is a world where faithful Christians are often persecuted for doing God's will, while evil people enjoy the rewards of their sin. This is a world where innocent lives are ripped from mother's wombs and God's laws are flouted and mocked. All that will be eradicated in the next world. The second coming of Jesus Christ brings both destruction and renewal. And as believers, brothers and sisters, we must live holy and godly lives. Not only because this world isn't going to last, but also because a new world is going to take its place. We must pursue righteousness. Both to distance ourselves from this decaying and doomed world, but also to prepare for the next, the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, verse 14, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, he's just assuming it, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. There it is again, just like verse 9. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then in the midst of his exhortation, Peter suddenly brings the Apostle Paul into the discussion. Verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Amen. (laughs) But which ignorance and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. So let me paraphrase that. I wish I had more time to unpack this, but here's the logic of what Peter's telling us from these verses. Christian, because you are waiting for God to destroy this present world and form a new one, In the meantime, you need to be doing two things. First, be diligent to live a godly life so that you will receive your eternal reward. Second, consider the Lord's patience or his apparent delay in coming as an opportunity for salvation. Both these notions are also taught by our brother, the Apostle Paul. Because apparently some are misusing And distorting what Paul wrote in his letters, probably uh, to advance a a licentious agenda. So think of Romans 6, let sin, that grace may abound, stuff like that. But that's twisting, that's distorting scripture. And, And it's super interesting to note that Peter calls Paul's writings just that, right? He calls them scripture. Peter equates Paul's letters with the God breathed and authoritative Old Testament holy writings. They're twisting, they're distorting of Scripture. That isn't just some innocent matter, some inconsequential matter. Those who distort Paul's writings and other Scriptures to support sin, he says, are destined for destruction. Destined for destruction. They're destined for eternal judgment in hell. The stakes couldn't be higher. And then Peter concludes with two commands that summarize the entire letter. We looked at this last week in some details. I'm just going to skim the surface here. Command number one. Be on your guard against false teachers. Command number two, grow, mature in your understanding and practice of God's grace in Christ. Verse 17, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard. 
that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. New City, through this short series in 2 Peter, we've all been amply warned about the danger of false teaching, right? And, and forewarned should mean forearmed, ready to resist all the perverse attractions of the false teachers' heresies, but we must constantly be on our guard. We must be in a constant state of watchfulness. Otherwise, as verse 17 says, we run the risk of being carried away by the error of the lawless and falling from our secure position. Yes, Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ provides a solid foundation for spiritual vitality in this life and then glory in the next. And you can have absolute confidence in that foundation. God wants you to. It's yours for the asking. Bank your eternal soul on it. Christ's blood can make the foulest clean. But our security in Jesus doesn't condone a carelessness toward our attitude. A carelessness and attitude in our struggle with sin. And I, I use that word deliberately. Our struggle with sin. If you're just like, Psh, I'm just so far above everyone spiritually. I'm just coasting along here. No, there is struggle with sin. Maximum effort. You're fighting sin. Putting it to death. Confidence in our status before God in Christ Jesus must never lead to presumption on God's grace, a presumption that leads us to toy with the danger of false teachers or to place serious striving after holiness on the back burner as we coast across the finish line. And after his final warning, Peter also issues a final positive exhortation. The last verse in the book with this we close. He's telling this to you, but grow in the grace of and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we're looking for a single key verse for all of Second Peter, that would probably be it. Here Peter summarizes his root concern, that his readers, Christians, resisting the heresy of the false teachers, continue to grow spiritually, becoming more and more like the Christ whom they confess. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen.